We read scripture this morning from Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. And we read this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 21, question and answer 56, which has to do with the forgiveness of sins. Romans 4, we hear the inspired, infallible word of God. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, 
to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I say, we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21. We have question and answer 56. It's found in the back of our Psalters on page 12. Question and answer 56. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask the question, what is the greatest problem and threat in society and in the church? And the answer to that is, I am. You are. Our personal sinful natures pose the greatest struggle, the greatest challenge to a church of Jesus Christ. We mentioned that last week, and now we look into that in more detail this morning. It's so easy for us to focus on all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of troubles all around us and to try to make an issue of everything that we see that's going amiss. But we need to be honest with ourselves. I am the biggest problem. And my unwillingness to confess and repent from my sin often is what stands in the way of my communion with God and my communion and fellowship with my fellow saints. My walk with God is that which is primary. And not dealing properly with my sin, and not dealing properly with those who sin against me, causes so much sorrow and so much grief in your and my lives. We don't want to be admonished because of our sins. And so we become angry when our parents point out our sins to us as teenagers. Or when our spouse points out a sin to us. Or maybe the elders admonish us because of sin. We get tired of that. And we convince ourselves that we can continue unrepentantly in that way that we desire to go. And our sinful natures resisting then that authority are tempted then just to continue. Continue in sin. We're not going to say sorry. We're not going to change. We're not going to repent. So, beloved, if you were to get at the core of the heart of the problem, the greatest problem in the world, you need to look into the human heart and expose the sin that resides within that one and his depraved nature. The sinfulness of the human nature leads men and women then to think there's no need for a church. I don't need the church. Why would I need the church? And so they withdraw from the church. They will not employ their gifts for the good of others. They gather instead on their own, with their family perhaps, in their own homes, instead of in the Lord's house. But beloved, Jehovah God is faithful to His church. And that's what this Lord's Day has been impressing upon us. And that's the truth of Scripture. Jehovah God's faithfulness is evident again and again. As Jehovah God chose to Himself a church from eternity... 
And as he's busy gathering that church out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and as he will preserve to himself a church in the midst of the wickedness of this world, and he will preserve his saints, even saving them from themselves and giving them to know the victory that is theirs in him. By God's grace, we know our sin. We confess that sin. And we live in the joy and in the wonder that that sin is forgiven. The forgiveness of sins, beloved, is the greatest and most marvelous blessing that the child of God can experience. And that's why here the apostle makes reference to that. Referencing and quoting David in connection with Abraham. In verse 7, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. To know that I'm a sinner, but my sins are covered. My sins are forgiven. God is not going to hold me accountable for them. That's the liberating wonder of the gospel. And that's the freedom that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. He not only convicts us of our sin, but he drives us to the comfort and the joy of forgiveness. And he gives us to know the blessedness that is ours in Christ by faith. It's a connection with the church, in connection with the preaching of the gospel. That gospel of grace, that we know that joy, and that that joy lives in our hearts. That which drives us to the cross, so that we realize that we are empty There's nothing of ourselves that we can bring, but we lean on Christ and the wonder of His sacrifice alone. Working in us the conviction that I am and ever will remain a living member of Christ and a member of Christ's church. Beloved, we've seen many wonderful and marvelous blessings of membership in the church. The calling that God gives us, seek out a church that's faithful to Christ, where the marks of a church are evident where we can submit to elders and where there are elders who look out for our spiritual well-being, where fellow saints encourage and lead us in the way everlasting, where we must, as young people, join ourselves as we come to years, using our gifts for the glory of God and for the good of His saints. God gives us a wonderful hope this morning. Not only does He forgive us our sins, but also our corrupt nature. And he graciously imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We look at that blessing this morning. The forgiveness of sins, noting the basis of it in the cross, and the fruit of it being communion with one another and with God. He will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature. Your and my tendency through all of our lives is to minimize our sin. It's to treat our sin lightly. It's to fail to see the tremendous and powerful impact and destructiveness of our sin. It's to see everybody else's sin, but to be blind to our own. And we become blind to the effect of that sin in our lives. So that not living in the consciousness of our sin as we ought, we don't pray for forgiveness like we should. And we don't live in the consciousness that our walk with God is that which is most precious in our lives. I know how guilty I can be of that at times. And all of us fall into that rut 
where we're not conscious of our sin, we're not praying for forgiveness, and we're not interested in hearing any admonitions. And so proud we can get that we think that if we are forgiven, it's because of our own actions and our own works. It's because of how good we are, because of the things that we've done. And God humbles us, and God reminds us again and again in His Word, There is nothing in yourselves that deserves forgiveness. It's all of grace. It's a wonder of God's grace and God's goodness. And we're drawn to Christ and to the wonder of His love for us. Within the church and within the communion of saints, there are so many sins and there's so much reason for discouragement. There are sins of which office bearers are guilty. Sins that affect adults, that affect children, And when office bearers fall into sin and those sins are present and their effect in the congregation, tremendous sorrow and tremendous grief is evident within the church. And there's a need to repent, to confess those sins, and to seek healing by the grace of God. There are sins of grieving the Holy Spirit by not making use of the means of grace as God ordains. Sins of hatred, sins of envy, sins of holding grudges. Every single day we're guilty of things that we don't do that we should or things we do that we ought not do. And every day we increase the debt then that we owe to God. The devil works hard in the church. He already has the wicked world, but it's the church that's his target. And he thinks foolishly that he can separate the believers from Christ. And so he goes to work trying to do so as a devouring lion seeking to destroy Christ's church. Will the devil's influence destroy the church of Christ? Will the devil so have an impact that the church will not be gathered? Those are the questions that this Lord's Day addresses. Some say because of these sins and because of this sinfulness, the church is not going to be able to be gathered out of this world. The failure of men and women means that some are going to go to hell without ever ever having heard the gospel. And that the failure of the church means then the blood of men and women are going to be on the church because of the church, her failure. We remember, beloved, the testimony of God through His Word. And that testimony is such that while we don't downplay the power of the devil and his influence, we know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against Christ and against his church. We testify that that fierce opposition of the devil will be used by God, not only not to deter his purpose, but to accomplish his purpose. And we have the wonder of the cross as a testimony to that marvelous wonder. Wicked men took hold of the Savior, and they crucified him. And God yet ordaining that wicked event for the salvation and for the good of his church and for her gathering. Now the saints of Rome to whom the apostle here is writing knew what sin was. Many of them had experienced terrible sins in their past. Guilty of gross sin that they had been engaged in. There were men and women who had fallen into those sins who were ashamed of them and now had repented and turned from them. Were these sins of such a nature that the church could not continue? Were these sins of such a nature that they could not call themselves saints any longer? These were concerns they had. The church at Rome, the church here at Calvary, 
may not hold those sins against those individuals who have repented. The gospel comes to sinners, and sinners confess their sin. They turn from it. They repent. And repentant sinners are drawn to Christ. They're drawn to the cross. And they rejoice in the marvelous grace and the goodness of Almighty God. And united they are in this glorious truth. I am forgiven. My sins, as grievous as they are, the consequences of which I still have to deal with, are forgiven. And I now know peace with God. And I'm able to live in communion with God and with one another. Now God leaves in our lives consequences continually to remind us not to become proud. We were proud at one point and we fell into sin. And we were burned. And while we're forgiven, the scars remain the whole of our lives as a means to teach us, you are weak. You need to look to God. And you need to lean on Him and on His strength. We confess, beloved, this morning by... God's grace that Christ is at work in his church. And Christ is at work in his church by his spirit, giving saints to know the forgiveness of their sins. Working in them the blessed assurance. Though you are a sinner, God will not hold those sins against you. God will remember them no more. He's cast them off because of the work of Christ on your behalf. That's the blessedness that is associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're treating here the work of the Holy Spirit, and especially His work in, the connect, in connection with His church. There are those who cut themselves off from the church. Will they be able to know the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins? There's the calling that God lays upon us to seek out membership in a church faithful to God and to His Word. Always the calling is ours to leave a church that's less faithful in order to join ourselves to one that is more faithful. But generally, why is it that men and women separate themselves from the church? It's because they're walking in sin and they refuse to turn from it. They will not. Often admonished, set in their sin, they say, no, we're not going to turn. And therefore, I would rather cut myself off from Christ and His church than show true sorrow and repentance for sin. There's no joy in that path. There's no blessing in that way. And the Bible makes this very, very clear. 1 John 1, verses 5 through 7 address the reality of sin among the saints and within the church and the hope that is ours. 1 John 1, verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
We enjoy fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. And we, assure, we experience the assurance of the forgiveness of sin and the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. But if we say, I have fellowship with God, I have fellowship with Jesus Christ, and we continue unrepentantly in sin, then we lie. We're not walking in fellowship with God. We're not walking in communion with Christ. We're living in love with self. And we've made ourselves God in the place of Jehovah and His sovereign will. Outside the sphere of light, there's only darkness. The blood of Jesus Christ and its cleansing power is evident in the context of forgiveness and in the context of the church and the proclamation of the gospel within the church. Think also of this. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Isn't that humbling? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How are you forgiving those who've indebted themselves to you? That's how you desire God to forgive you. There's an inseparable relationship between my being forgiven by God and my action and my conduct with those around me. And that's the point that the apostle here is establishing as well in Romans 4. Those who are forgiven show it. They live it. Notice how Abraham lived. And notice how Abraham walked. He gave evidence of the fact that he was forgiven, that he knew the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You cannot pray for one another without being able to walk with God faithfully. Love God and love the neighbor as oneself. Jesus impressed that same thing upon his disciples in response to Peter's question. Remember Peter asking, is there a limitation to forgiving? He thinks, well, maybe it would be enough if I forgave seven times. Maybe seven times seven. Peter's asking, trying to find out, where's the limit? Surely I don't have to forgive again and again and again. And Jesus' response was, you need to forgive again and again and again. How often did God forgive you? What if God would say to you, I'm only going to forgive you seven times. Oh, just a minute. I'll forgive you seven times seven. We would be doomed. We would all perish everlastingly in hell. And so Jesus impressed upon the disciples the obligation to forgive. And as soon as you refuse to forgive one another, you're forfeiting the blessedness of that forgiveness of yourselves. You're not living in the joy of that forgiveness. You're not giving evidence of it by your walk and your conduct. Now, the Catechism says that God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. That doesn't mean that there's a change in God, that God did remember my sins. Now God won't remember my sins any longer. The change is worked within us. We know that God, according to the sovereign decree of election, determined to save to himself a people and to redeem them through the blood of the Lamb. Always there is forgiveness in God. But that forgiveness is experienced only in time, by faith. Faith is necessary for forgiveness. And God works faith in our hearts, and God gives us by faith to know the wonder of the cross and to know the experience of forgiveness. There's no forgiveness apart from faith. 
And as that faith is worked in our hearts, we lay hold upon Christ. We lay hold upon the wonder of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And the change then is evident within us in that we have peace. We know the joy and the wonder of that salvation. We are transferred from a state and condition of condemnation to now that of forgiven. The blood of Jesus Christ being the only ground, the only foundation of that wonder. God can't just cancel a debt without payment being made. He's righteous and he's just. And so God demands payment needs to be made for the sins that you've committed against me. And that payment, we know, was made by our Savior. Voluntarily, lovingly, He made the ultimate sacrifice on Calvary, laying His life down in love for God and love for you and for me. We could never satisfy that justice of God ourselves. What we could never do... He did as God, very God, and a real righteous man. And the apostle is addressing that wonder here in Romans 4. Romans 3 established the depravity and the sinfulness of man. And the question that is raised, can man escape? Can man climb out of that sinfulness of himself? Is a man justified on the basis of his own works? And why does the Bible seem to imply that with Abraham? where it talks about the fact that Abraham was justified. He believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Verse 3. How do we understand that? And the apostle insists the reward is not of works. It's of grace alone. The point of the apostle is forgiveness is all of grace. And that's the issue that's being addressed here. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, faith is required, and faith is a gift from God. And God works that faith as a marvelous work of his grace. And now having that faith, I know the wonder of forgiveness, and I confess God's gracious work in my life. We could never satisfy ourselves, but God, through the gift of faith, gives us to know that satisfaction. And the evidence of that forgiveness was, was evident in Abraham in that he believed in God. He walked before God. Again, the point being, a life of forgiveness is seen concretely in God's children. They live by faith and they walk in the knowledge of the grace of God, as that being alone, their salvation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took upon himself the full burden of my and your sin. As the head of God's elect, he paid that price. And he paid that debt fully. Not one part of the debt remains. The basis of our forgiveness is the cross of Jesus Christ alone. And that's the marvelous expression of God's grace. God then works faith in our hearts by which we lay hold upon that cross. We confess our sin and we know forgiveness. And that's the blessedness that is ours. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Though before you stood under condemnation, you now know peace with God. 
You know the victory. There is therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And God works that faith by which we believe this wonder. My sins, every last one of them, along with my sinful nature, is blotted out by the work of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ, the only ground on which I can base this prayer. And therefore, of God, and God alone, is the blessing of the reconciliation through the blood of the cross. God ordained it from all eternity. He sent Jesus to die on Calvary, and he gives me the gift of faith so that I can confess it. It's never in my own power to lay hold upon the blessedness of forgiveness. It's never in my own power that I was sorry for my sin. It's never in my own power that I repented in turn. This is the work of Christ by his Spirit, by faith. And again, beloved, this is seen. This will be evident in your and my life. Abraham believed, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. David experienced God's goodness and God's mercy, and he expressed it. This is the greatest blessing that we could ever experience. There is no blessing greater to know I am forgiven and I have peace with God. There's the humility to esteem others above myself. There's the knowledge of my sin and my unworthiness that enables me to walk humbly in relationships. And there's the spirit of forgiveness by which I forgive others. There's the spirit of grace by which I show grace toward others. Where there is forgiveness, beloved, there is unspeakable blessedness. Forgiveness within a marriage, forgiveness within a home, forgiveness within a church. Now we know that the child of God may never believe something just because he experiences it. That can be the world's experience. It feels good, therefore I believe it. The child of God never concludes something is real because I feel it or I experience it. But when the Bible says, this is real, your sins are forgiven, and God by faith works in you the experience of that forgiveness, then the child of God knows the wonder of that forgiveness. And he confesses this, my forgiveness is not based on my experience. My experience demonstrates It proves it's the fruit of God's grace and God's work within me. The testimony of my heart and the testimony of my lips is that I know my sin and I have been on my knees before God and I've looked to Christ and I know that there is forgiveness with God. There is peace and there is hope. God by faith works that perfect work also for us and in us by His Spirit. And the testimony of God is that which we embrace. Not a feeling, not an emotion, but the fact that I am a partaker of Jesus Christ. I have the forgiveness of my sins, and I have the righteousness that Jesus Christ has earned for me. And by faith, I lay hold on that wonder. And I believe that nothing can take it away from me. Though the devil wages a continued war against me, though I am weak and sinful, I cling to the cross and the strength that is mine in Jehovah God to preserve and to keep me as a living member of Christ so that none can pluck me out of his hand. Beloved, there's union then. There's communion again with God and with one another. 
Life within the church is able to flourish because of the forgiveness of sin. As the catechism is laying out the blessings of the Spirit and the work of the church, it is striking that it singles out the forgiveness of sins. We understand the connection between the forgiveness of sins and the communion of the saints. There can be no communion among the saints without the forgiveness of sins. The doctrine of election includes atonement, forgiveness. Those whom Christ calls into his body are washed, they're cleansed. And in the fellowship of the church now, they lay hold upon that wonder and they make it their confession. I believe. And holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. Now there's two important truths in connection with that that we have to understand. First of all, there are no spiritual blessings outside of Christ and his church. There's no grace apart from Christ. There's no blessedness apart from Christ and apart from his church. Christ, by his Spirit, works in us to repent and to turn from our sins. He gives us his spiritual blessings, blessings that are found through the word and through the sacraments. Within the church, in connection with Christ and the work of his Spirit and by the power of his word, I experience God's blessed assurance that I belong to Christ. And I'm a living member of his church. My sins are forgiven. And I have peace with God. But secondly, we have to understand too, the only possibility of experiencing eternal life as the body of Christ is in the way of the forgiveness of our sins. Sin separates us from God. We need that barrier broken down. And the only way we can have fellowship together is in the way of confessing our sins individually before God and one another. Sin blocks the true exchange of that union and communion. The joy of forgiveness motivates believers to forgive one another, to lead one another to the cross, to experience the wonder and the blessedness together of that forgiveness. And God assures us of that. Christ has forgiven you all your sin and your sinful nature. And I realize And I'm brought to see that that forgiveness is by faith. And God works by faith, repentance, and true sorrow in my life so that I cry out to him and I lean on him alone. That forgiveness of sins becomes the source now of my union with God and my union and communion with one another. I can look at those that are sitting in the pew around me and with me as confessing Christians. I can look at those who are in other congregations who confess Christ. And I confess, they're my fellow believers. God has eternally chose us. He sent Jesus to make atonement for our sins. Even as he forgave me, he forgave them. And now we have something in common. We have something so marvelous in common. Our sins are forgiven. And so instead of focusing on the negatives, instead of focusing on the weaknesses that I see around me, I focus on the positive, the fruit of the Spirit, and the evidence that Christ is at work in the lives of these individuals. They are fellow saints with me, even as I also am a saint. Now, what is a saint? 
Some say, well, a saint is someone who's sinless or someone who's able to accomplish sinless perfection in this life. Others would say a saint is someone who's learned not to sin or a saint is someone who's got more good in them than bad or maybe even someone that can do miracles. None of those are a proper definition biblically of what a saint is. A saint is a sinner who confesses the wonder of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, who by faith lays hold on the cross and knows his or her forgiveness in the cross. Not only is a saint one who's forgiven, but he's one who's sanctified. He's declared by God that he's holy. He knows not only that my sins are forgiven, I've been justified, but he also knows, and God has declared me holy in Jesus Christ. The saint is a sinner of whom God says, though I will punish sinners and destroy those who continue in sin, you are forgiven because you have the life of Christ within you. Saint is a sinner who confesses by grace his sin and clings to the cross and knows his salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Every true believer, every brother, every sister is a saint. Whether I see their saintliness manifesting itself at all times is not the issue. By faith. I confess it because I know my saintliness doesn't show itself either as it ought always. The issue is whether or not God has set them apart from the world and made them his own. And that's the confession we make. Jehovah God from eternity chose to himself a people and in time he gathers that people as his church united to Christ and gives them to know all the blessings of salvation by faith alone. Now that right view of a saint then, a fellow believer confessing Christ with me, has practical implications. It enables me to enjoy communion with that one. There's no possibility of a believer having fellowship with an unbeliever. Now we have to define what fellowship is there. We have contact, obviously. We have interaction. But can we really have fellowship with one who is not united to Christ? What fellowship has light with darkness, the Bible says? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? First Corinthians poses those questions. And again, we ask, what does that fellowship look like? And that's a prayerful question that we have to make before God. The one whose spouse is an unbeliever has the calling to live with them, to be a godly witness. And so that within that marriage, there's interaction, even if there's not the sweet fellowship and communion that one would desire. The child of God talks with unbelievers, works with unbelievers, lives next door to them at times in the same home. The child of God seeks to prevent their hurt as best he or she can, seeks their good, does good to them, shows kindness to them. There's interaction, but there's no true communion, fellowship. We can't work together with them to seek the glory of God. We have different goals, different purposes, different motivations. We don't have the same life of Christ that's evident. We're not proud, we're not haughty, and we may not be toward unbelievers because we know I did nothing of myself to accomplish this change. This is only by God's grace. And I pray for them. I seek their well-being. I seek their salvation, knowing that it's all of God and God's work alone. But this means then that as young people, you don't go 
on dates with unbelievers. You don't seek friendship with those who do not confess Christ. You marry in the Lord. You seek friends among those who share with you a confession of Christ and the wonder of salvation in Him. It may mean that at times there's even a member of my own church who might not be able to be my friend as intimately as another or one that I would desire. And I'm not going to go where that one goes because at this point in their life, they're not showing themselves to be a saint. And so I have to lovingly caution them and admonish them and then not follow them where they go. It's so easy to say, I know he or she is going to the bar, they're going to the nightclubs, they're living it up, but they go to the same church as me, so therefore it's okay then, I'm just going to join them. No, I'm called to live unto Christ and to show forth his praise. There may be others outside of our congregation with whom we enjoy closer friendship because of their union with Christ with us. But this doctrine of sainthood affects our communion. It affects our friendships. It serves as a basis for that friendship. How are we able to be friends? Because by faith, we share in the confession of Christ, our union to him and the communion that we enjoy with him. Psalm 119, 163 states, I am a companion of all them that fear thee, and them that teach thy precepts. Remember that, young people. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and them that teach thy precepts. Those are my friends. Those are the ones that I share communion with and enjoy friendship with. And then finally, beloved, I seek to employ my gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. That's the theme that runs throughout Lord's Day 21. And this is a wonderful privilege for Christ's sake. The gifts that God gives us are not mine. The selfish attitude that always crosses our minds is, they're for me. What can I get out of it? How can I be benefited? Rather, the question is, how can I benefit others? How can I be used for others and for their good? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I've learned from my sins. And now what I've learned, I can help others with. I've seen how sin and its consequences can impact my life. And now I can warn these young people about the threat of drunkenness and alcoholism and the rest. I seek out ways. Together we gather for worship. That's part of the communion of saints. We delight in the gospel. Sermon maybe doesn't have direct application to me. I rejoice because Christ was proclaimed and the Spirit is at work. And I rejoice in the fact that my fellow saints are being built up, edified. But there's more to worship than the sermon. There's the singing. The apostle says in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 that individual members of the body together are admonishing and encouraging one another through song. So together we sing and we bring forth these praises as a testimony one to another. There's communion after hearing the word. As we mingle together, as throughout the week we encourage one another and we strengthen one another in the Lord. Looking for opportunities, looking for ways that we can be used by God for the benefit of others who may be struggling, who may have challenges in their lives. A child of God who knows the forgiveness of sins desires to spend time with the saints, seeks out fellowship with them. He knows how good God has been to him. And how undeserving he is. 
And he seeks now to live out of that faith and to show forth the praise of that great God in all of his interactions within the church of Jesus Christ. He looks away from self and he looks to Christ. And he believes and he lays hold upon that. I am and forever shall remain a living member of Christ and his church. Not because of anything of myself, but because Jehovah God in Jesus Christ has given me to know the wonder of the atonement. And my sins are forgiven. And I am not holding grudges. I want fellowship with my fellow saints. I'm willing to put aside my own sin as God, for Christ's sake, has put aside my sin. I'm willing to put aside the sins of others. That's good and pleasant. That's the enjoyment of the life that is mine in Christ. And I seek to show forth His praise. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, strengthen and bless us that we might know the wondrous blessedness that there is therefore now no condemnation, that we have peace with Thee, and that that peace is such a glorious wonder that already now we can live and die happily. That we can go forward in life knowing that which is our only comfort in life and in death, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And cause that we might know the forgiveness of our sins and live in the joy and wonder of it. Amen.